All right, well, welcome back. Uh, I'm back from my first week back in the saddle at school. We, all right, we at the school, uh, we, we hit off the new year by losing our whole network. Our whole computer network went down because of a, a bug, a, a ransomware, a malicious ransomware thing that just took over everything. We've had professionals come in and say, yeah, pretty much unless you, there is no, I have teachers who lost 20 years of files because they had never backed up. Yeah. So I should have brought a prayer request up. I'm sorry. <laughs> that would have been, yeah, it was kind of like but dealing with bereavement at the campus for quite a bit of things. But uh, um, anyway, but we're, it, you know, it's, it's, it was neat to be able to balance, however, every morning we meet with, uh, you know, all our faculty. We have a de devotional every morning. And, and just to hear the cares and concerns of people in the community, you know, and it, was, it served as a great balance. Uh, and I had to learn my own lesson of not being just as good as my latest circumstances. So, which is something we've talked about in here quite a bit. All right, well, we're going to continue with the life of Christ. And for the first time, we're going to span a couple of, uh, a couple of Gospels. Notice that the outline is not one passage divided in two, which is usually my normal way of doing things. But uh, it's two passages. So that's, that's going to be our focus. And this is going to wrap up... Um, our look at the nativity and childhood of Jesus Christ. And then we'll start with his public ministry next week because we don't have much. After, after uh, Jesus is a small child and we read what we read today, the only account we have of Jesus as a, a pre-adolescent or anything is from Luke. And we'll look at that. And of course, there are apocryphal gospel accounts written centuries later that fill in a lot of the gaps, but they're more like reading, you know, the legends of Hercules almost, if you, if you, if you read them, uh, that is the childhood. So uh, we're going to wrap that up uh, this morning. So first part of the outline is to Egypt and back, and then we have to Jerusalem and back, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew's account, you recall... Um, He's doing what he can to show his audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah. The King has come. And for Matthew, he sees all over what we call the Old Testament uh, hints of and looks to and, and, and foreshadowings of the Messiah. So he's really big about bringing up, and so it was fulfilled, and so the prophecy that was fulfilled, and so... But often they're not things that we would consider necessarily prophecies. And we're going to see some of that again. But it's really interesting to see how, how much Matthew sees in Jesus the recapitulation or the fulfillment of and thus the full living of Israel. So he's going to do what he can to show that Jesus is the embodiment of true Israel. And we're going to hear that through what we're going to see in this account of right on the heels of the Magi. We looked at that last week. Having, having departed and gone back home, we're now going to take up the narrative in Matthew chapter 2 about what happens with Joseph and Mary and the child. Where, what happens because of the fallout of what Herod the Great wants to do. And that's, that's where we're going to take up we're going to read it in a couple of, of sections. Jay's back. Our first reader is returned. 
So Jay, if you wouldn't mind. No, I don't mind. All right. In chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, just read through 15. 13 okay. through 15. He escaped to Egypt. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. But Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. <coughs> then Joseph got up, took the child, and with his mother and his mother at, by night and fled to Egypt. They remained there until the death of Herod. This was the, to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called I called my son. All right. Is that it? Okay. Yes, sir, you did great. All right, we're we're familiar with this. Now Luke doesn't record this particular uh, event in the childhood of Jesus nor does he record the visit of the Magi. But because Herod is now aware of what's going on, he is now planning to kill Jesus. Uh, remember, this is not out of character for Herod. He had many family members killed because of paranoia and fear that they would usurp him. And the whole nation really doesn't really see him as their king anyway. So he's always looking for conspiracies. And this, he wants to get rid of Jesus. And Joseph, again, is told in a dream. Notice, this is several times, we're going to see it again, that through dreams, God is communicating. And God communicates to Joseph that he is to take his family and flee to Egypt. Um, of course, uh, you know, we, Egypt and Israel have a long history, you know, if you know your Bible at all, but there, are, there is a large population at this time, when we're reading, of Jews in Egypt. Um, Egypt has always been sort of, uh, when, when, they're not, when they weren't invading, well, there, it, was a, it was a haven uh, for, for Jews. In fact, uh, most scholars speculate, and, and Philo of Alexandria tells us, there were over a million Jews in Alexandria at this time. May I mention something? That's the time of Cleopatra, too, of Egypt. Yeah. Right, it was, it was after her, but a little bit after her, yeah. Not, not much. Yeah, very good. So, there's a large Jewish population. They're not just going as vagabonds where there's not going to be anybody that they have nothing in common with. But it is an act of faith to leave everything and go to Egypt. They leave by night. Uh, chances are they didn't go alone, but we're not told anything about that. Um, if they went to Alexandria, that's about 300 miles. Uh, but to the border, it's, it's, a, it's, it's probably about a three or four day journey to the border. We're not told exactly where they go, but they go to Egypt. And then Matthew brings up the first of these in this section that we're looking at, where he says, and thus through the prophet, the words, uh, what the Lord spoke through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. And that's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, this, it's, it's actually looking back at the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. In, that, in, that, in the original context, it's, out of, it, it's, it's a recounting of God's deliverance. And my son is Israel. 
So what you have Matthew's doing here is saying, is saying just as God called Israel out of Egypt, Jesus will be in Egypt just as Israel was called to start the first covenant out of Egypt. So Jesus, the recapitulation of Israel, is called for the summoning and the beginning of the new covenant. Matthew wants us to see in Jesus the history of Israel, that Jesus repeats this. Now, that's not saying he's making this up. There are some scholars who say, well, if Matthew is so intent on us seeing this, then he's just making these things up to make it fulfill. That's not the case. He's seeing what has happened and is recognizing in Jesus that he is fulfilling all of what Israel is to be, including coming out of Egypt. Now, he's not there yet, but we're told that he's going to go. Chances are they stayed probably a year or less. Herod died 4 B.C. in March of 4 B.C. We, in Jericho. I mean, we know those details from Josephus. There are some details, however, that only Scripture records, and that's what we're going to read next in this. Now we're going to see what really happened with Herod. So someone read uh, verses 16 through 18. 16, 17, and 18. All right. This is traditionally known as the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, innocents, you know, plural, not innocents in, in, a, in the adjectival sense. Um, interestingly, there is no extra biblical record of this event. There's nothing else, like, unlike most of Herod's reign or a lot of Herod's reign, we have confirmation from other sources. This is not confirmed in any other source which is interesting because that doesn't tell us about the suspect nature of the historicity of this account. What it tells us is just what a cruel and bloody age it was and just how horrible Herod was in that this doesn't merit historical record from anyone else, that something like this would happen. Uh, in fact, throughout the ancient world, the slaughtering children um, I know it sounds odd, is not unusual. That should sound familiar today. Um, but in this case, if, if, if Bethlehem is what scholars think, it's probably about 1,000 people, maybe, then at any given time there might have been a dozen, a dozen to 20 male children under the age of two. That's kind of the, the numbers that we're looking at. And that type of thing happening wouldn't merit historic record in such a backwater place, especially given that it's Herod doing it. 
This would not be out of character for him. Some speculate as to whether it was indeed carried out, but we have no reason to suspect that it wasn't. Hence, Matthew's, Matthew bringing up Jeremiah. Well, anyway, um, notice this is spawned because he realized that the wise men tricked him. That's one thing that despots don't like is to be outwitted at their own game. To be, to be out, out um, schemed, if you want to think of it that way. So he flies into a rage. And thus, this command. Now, does that mean that Jesus was two years old? Probably not. This is probably a margin of error. He had ascertained the rising of the star from the wise men. And from that, just said, well, let's go two years and under. Might have been a year, something like that. But that doesn't mean Jesus was necessarily two. It just, Herod wants to make sure that, these, that whoever this is, is taken care of. Hence, two years and under. Now, that should sound sort of like the deliverance of Moses, right? When Moses was a child and his parents, through their, you know, his mother especially, was able to save him from an edict of Pharaoh. Well, in this case, you have, you have that going on, but the passage that, that Matthew quotes is more about exile. It's about the exile. So we already have under, an understanding of the, the, the exodus. We just brought up that my son might, will come out of Egypt. And now we have a passage that speaks of the exile, the second most telling event in Israel's history. The exodus and exile, those are the two biggies. The exile to Babylon. And this passage from Jeremiah speaks of that. It's Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse 15. 31, 15. And it's pretty close as it's recorded here by Matthew. Um, and it, it recounts when the the people of Israel were gathered in Ramah, north of Jerusalem, about to be deported. And there was weeping for the children of Israel because they were leaving. They were being exiled. And you have Rachel as the personification of all mothers, weeping for the children of Israel going into exile. And here Matthew wants us to see a parallel of Jesus experiencing exile. But just as there was weeping at exile, in that passage in Jeremiah, it also says, but don't, even though you're weeping now, there will be a return. So it is still a message of hope that there will be return. So, it's not just a biblical passage saying all mothers are weeping for their children. It's more that we are, there is grief at exile, but anticipation of return. And this, Matthew wants us to see that in Jesus living as Israel, he is going through all that Israel went through and will ultimately fulfill the hopes of the coming Messiah. Well, that's the, the actual 
So we see that J Joseph's warned. They go to Egypt. Then Herod carries out this insidious plan. And now we're going to see what happens after this. So the next part of this passage is 19 through 23. Someone read that aloud for us. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. All right. How many dreams has Joseph had now? I don't know about, I bet he was wondering, man, I'm about to go to sleep. What was going to take place? Um, but it is through dreams that God is communicating to Joseph. And in this case, after a sojourn in Egypt, he's told now to return because those who were seeking the child's life have died. Well, it's not just Herod, but anyone who were his henchmen or those who were in, the, you know, it's, it's just a phrase to say that, look, no longer in any danger. And we do know that Herod died 4 BC, I told you that already, um, in Jericho. Uh, he, has a he had a palace in Jericho, um, and it was in Jericho that he had several of the leading citizens rounded up so that they could be executed at his death so that people would mourn when he died if they weren't mourning because he died. That was not carried out, uh, thank goodness, but uh, that's, that's Herod the Great. Now, interestingly, we're told that on the way back, he, I mean, he hears that, Joseph hears that well, Archelaus is now in charge, and even that is a cause for concern. Here's what's happened. Uh, Herod, up until his death, changed his will several times. His understanding of how he wanted the kingdom divided changed several times because he kept killing his sons. So he had to change it several times. Uh, he, at his death, um, based on his will, it was divided. His kingdom was divided into three parts and different sons were in charge of these three regions. And Archelaus happens to be the son in charge of the province of Judea. And what we know from history about Archelaus is it's just almost as bad as Herod. It was so bad that eventually, uh, basically, uh, Caesar Augustus had him exiled to Gaul. All right, he had him not just deposed, but sent away. Uh, that's how bad it was. And it was because of his rule and how bad it was that then Augustus put in charge of Judea a Roman procurator. Hence, we have people like Pilate later because they just said, forget it. These people are ruthless. Because Archelaus almost immediately tried to, you know, people were gathering, saying, all right, now that Herod is dead, here's what we want. Here's how this should be. And he had 3,000 men butchered in Jerusalem as one of his first acts of rule. 
So Archelaus has just as bad a reputation. Hearing this, of course, Joseph feared to go there, so he's going to go all the way back to Nazareth. Nazareth is under, after the kingdom was divided, is under the rule of Herod Antipas. And he will come up later. And at this time, he was more benign as a ruler. And you're going to hear more about him later as we study the life of Christ. There was another, uh, the other son was Herod Philip, and we'll hear some about him as well. But he was over areas that most of the gospel does not take place in. So that's how that was divided up at Herod's death. And here you have Joseph saying, wow, I'm not going to go, go there. So they go to Galilee to Bethlehem. I mean, to Nazareth, sorry. I was checking. You did great. You did jumped. So, well done. Um, have you ever done that before? I, I, you know, I will, I'll be looking at a student at school, someone maybe I've known four years. And I'll be looking right at them. Can't think of their name. Save my life. Wait you get older. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till I get older. Okay, that's going to get you. I'll just call them all buddy. <laughs> All right, buddy. <clears throat> anyway. But that's right. They need to. I don't know why they don't. Yeah. Um, anyway, and I'm married to, you know, her. That, you know, you know. Um, just kidding. Sorry, sorry. Um, we understand. We understand. All right, good, good. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Because I said Bethlehem instead of Nazareth. Anyway, so. Back to Nazareth, and thus was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. Now, notice we don't have a, spe a specific prophet mentioned here. Uh, we're not told a particular prophet or one prophet or even given a name. It's just fulfilled through the prophets. Because you will look in vain if you're trying to find a verse in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. You will search in vain. What had happened is over time... Uh, this, the general tenor of prophecy dictated that those who were looking for the Messiah were those who were understanding who the Messiah was to be. There was this understanding that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there are several ways to, to and say, now, where did this come from? How did this happen? I'm going to just give you two. Uh, it could be a combination of both. First off, uh, the Nazareth, or to be a Nazorian, was it, was it was pretty much akin to us saying hick. Hey, he's just an old hick, you know, backwoodsman or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and, and, and thus fulfilling the understanding that Jesus would be of, in, in his background and where he came from, of little account or obscure or despised, that he would be called a hick, basically. The other is that in Isaiah 11.1, 1, we're told that there would be a branch off of the root of the tree of Jesse. There will come a branch off of the tree of the root of Jesse. The Hebrew word for branch is Natsir. Some see in the name of the town of Nazareth that this is branch town. And people would say, and, and, and scholars speculate that after the return from exile, those who settled in that region consciously named their village 
Branch Town, knowing of the whole Nazorian backwoods hick thing, so that their town itself would have that sort of messianic uh, overtone just to the name. So it could be from Isaiah 11.1 1, that Nazareth is branch town. So thus would be fulfilled that he would be a hick. All right? A nobody. In other words, there's nothing about him, as we read in Isaiah, the prophecies in Isaiah, there's nothing outwardly that would make you say, aha, you know, even in his background of coming from Nazareth. I wonder what town we would choose. And thus, he would be called, got a village in mind? Wink, Town, hmm? Wink Texas. Wink. He would, become, he would be called a Winkian. <laughs> yes. Wink, Texas. A Winkian. Yes. We could go with, with that. So to Egypt and back. And really what, I, what we need to see here is Matthew's conscious desire for his audience to recognize that Jesus is fulfilling the role of Israel. And he will ultimately fulfill that in becoming the light to all the nations. So it's, it's really important for us to see it. Once we get more into Matthew, we'll even see that Matthew divides his gospel into five parts, kind of as a reflection of the Pentateuch, the Torah. So that's one of the problems when you start studying the life of Christ and you had jumping back and forth from gospel to gospel, you miss some of the nuances that that particular gospel writer is trying to accomplish. I'll do what I can to make sure we're reminded of it as we go. So they get back to Nazareth. The only thing now that we know of his childhood post everything we've seen so far, we're going to find in Luke chapter 2. So now we're going to go to Luke chapter 2. And this is a famous episode as well. Most of, you, most of us are familiar with it. Of Jesus with the doctors at the temple. Meaning that the, the teachers of the law. The setting is Passover. Passover is a seven-day feast. Um, according to Torah, according to the law, Israelites, adult Israelites were to Come to, come to the tabernacle or the temple three times a year for the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. By this time, and with the diaspora of the Jews, meaning the dispersion of Jews all over, most would, if they could make it once a year to something in Jerusalem, they would usually choose the Passover. They weren't trying to be deliberately disobedient to the law, and in fact, uh, there were rabbis and teachers of the law who made exceptions because of distance and travel and those sorts of things. Oh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Why Pentecost? Well, it was, a, it was something before. Remember, Pentecost was already a festival before the, before the accounts in Acts. It just happened at Pentecost. All right, um, so anyway, so we're told that's, that's why they're in Jerusalem, and we'll get the full story in just a moment. So let's go ahead and actually read the entire passage. So someone who would like to read several verses, 41 through 52. 
and his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending a, the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it. But supposing to be in a caravan and when a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they, that is the parents, saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. All right, thank you. All right, now this strikes us, you know, the, the, the setting is easy to, to contemplate. We've already talked about the festival and that they would travel uh, not just by themselves, but with other people from their, their village and from their environs. People would go in caravans. And again, that's for safety's sake. Um, and these families are extended. Uh, but not just family, but also you know, close relations and all those things. And other people would join the caravans as well as you went. So they're there. They're there for the full seven days. And we're told that Jesus is 12. He's 12 years old, so he's in seventh grade. I'm just kidding. All right. All right. I'm sorry? Junior? Yeah, yeah he's, he's a junior high boy. Whoa. Which is pretty cool because the junior high boys I know don't even have souls. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm, just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. It, you know, half of, you know, when I, when I used to be over the junior high and high school. I'm just high school now. Amen. But, um, Half of my time as a junior high head was just to remind parents that it's going to be messy. It doesn't matter where you are. I don't care what junior high. It's just messy. It's, and it's just the way it is. You can't unmessy it. You've got to let them go through the mess. They've got to develop souls. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, it's so, but here's Jesus at this time. And they, they didn't have junior highs, by the way, just so you know. Um, interestingly, it's a year before when most boys... Would, would be made sons of the covenant or sons of the law. We all know that as bar mitzvah. Now, what we understand as a bar mitzvah today, no matter what your understanding is, just know that developed later, but it was still an understanding that around the age of 13 that sons were to engage in full covenant uh, fellowship and duty as young Jews. 
Uh, and it's telling that, that, that Joseph and Mary take him at age 12. It wasn't unusual to take the child before age 13 so that they can kind of get a feel for and see what's going on. So they learn before they're told to engage. Now that's a lesson for us right off the bat, all right? Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I did all I could. Yes, we had youth group. Yes, we had separate Sunday school. But I made sure that our students were front and center during worship services with grown-ups. And I encouraged them to be with grown-ups. We didn't take our children to children's church. We brought them to church. Well, they don't understand. I don't care. I want them to get into the rhythm of what it means to be a, an adult, mature worshiper of Jesus Christ. And if they have questions, guess what? They can ask me. And they did. So anyway, it's an old tradition to, and, and it's just common sense. If you want your kids to grow up to be like adults, make sure they're around adults. A part of our problem today in the increased and lengthened period of adolescence is because they're only around each other. If the wisest person you're around is 17 years old, you're not going to mature. So we need to be better at integrating our children into adult things if we want them to be adults. Um, you know, there's even... Oh, I heard an amen. I see that hand. No. Um, you know, there, there's even studies being done that with the advent of, and, and, right, and well-meaning, okay, not, this is not anything, this is not a, a, a slam, well-meaning to try to reach children and students. With the advent of camps and things in the 40s and 50s and then growing on where you would get kids away with other kids all the time and make it as contemporary and hip as we can, as those students grew up, and they became the adults. They didn't know how to deal with what we call traditional worship. So our worship services over time also changed to fit what happens at camps and, and retreats. Again, this is not a, a slam. It's just what happens when people aren't around others. Discipleship is imitative. People grow in Christ by being around other strong Christians. Can't just do it through a program. They've got to be around other people who are being faithful. Adult, wise, mature followers of Christ. All right, end of sermon. Here's what's going on with Jesus. His parents are faithful. They go every year. And it's interesting that only men were required. Women weren't required. Mary goes as well. So they're there, festival's over, and they leave. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, and they don't know where their son is? <laughs> now today, of course, with our overprotectiveness and our very modular, isolated families, we know exactly where our small brood is. And they're strapped into something, usually with helmets on, <laughs> all right? <coughs> Heaven forbid. They would get germs or a bump, but there they are. Well, in this, in this case, with these caravans, especially the way they traveled, it wouldn't have been unusual. They weren't being bad parents. 
Uh, as caravans traveled normally, I love this, women would be in the vanguard with the children. They would normally be walking in front with the children and the men and the older sons would walk in the rear. They didn't walk just as families. So it's obvious that Joseph probably thought, well, he's with Mary. Mary probably thought, well, he's, because he, remember, he's in that hybrid, right? He's 12. He could be with the children. He could be with the adults, depending on what's going on. So they just probably thought, well, he's with other family members or whatever. It's a big caravan. It's not like they were concerned. It also shows that they thought Jesus would be, of course, he's going to do the right thing. He's Jesus, right? He's, he's going to be there. So they're not concerned. This is not like, oh my gosh, we're, they don't know where their kid is. But as good parents then, at the end of the sojourn of a day's caravan journey, everyone would gather at an appointed place, and that's where they would share their meal and be together. And it's at that time they discover, where is Jesus? <laughs> I thought you had. <laughs> Go to the uncles and aunts. Hey, no, we didn't see. so he's not there, and it's been a they they've traveled a day. Well, now they've got to travel a day back, and it takes a day to find him. Hence the three days. And when they do, we're told that what's happened is that Jesus stayed behind, and he is in the temple courts, listening to and engaging with the teachers of the law, the scribes. There would have been more than just normal there at the conclusion, just like a lot of times happens today where you have some big event and then you have a mini conference after it or a mini conference before, depending on your specialty. Well, after, after Passover, a lot of the scribes from regions from where they came in, they would all stay and gather and discuss theological issues. Jesus is in one of these. And he is, he's not the teacher. You know, we have these legends of him being the one who is there teaching all these scribes. We're, we're not told that. He's listening. Now, he is asking questions and answering when asked. It's not that he is the one on high teaching these lowly scribes what they need to know. What, what we're supposed to get into the, see in this is that even at this young age, he is attuned, starting to be attuned to who he is and what his mission is. That's a big question, right? When did Jesus know exactly who he was? Well, it's hard to answer. But if he did grow, as we're told at the end of this passage, like any other boy would grow in wisdom and stature and knowledge and all those things, then it was a process. If he was fully human... As we fully start to learn who we are and what our place is, he did too. Well, that doesn't mean he was a, you know, a capricious little sassy little boy like some of them go through. It just means that he has to be human. And here we see that as part of this, he, as Isaiah said in 11, chapter 11, verse 2, we already read chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 2, that he is marked by... The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Isaiah tells us that's what the Messiah will be. And here we see Jesus already at a young age. That. Attuned to 
the purposes of God and finding His way in this. And they're marveling at His acumen, His ability to understand what they're discussing, to answer questions, and even to ask them questions about what's going on. And it's in that scenario that Mary and Joseph find Him. Would it be that most parents would like that? Where have you been? Well, I've been studying with these philosophers. That's normally not what happens, right? I mean, if you go to find your kid, where have they been? Okay, that's, normally it's not the case. But in this case, that's the deal. Now, like any parent, even Mary, who has been given this insight into who her child is, Joseph, who's been given this insight into who their child is, they're like us. As time passes, we, you know, sort of lose the edge and maybe lose our, you know, having that understanding to the forefront. So, she goes, where have you been? Notice she says, like any mother, you've, why have you treated us this way? How dare you do this to me? Okay, yeah. Why have you, why have you done this to us? Uh, we, we, we've been looking, you know, we've been looking anxiously. It's been horrible trying to find you. And that's kind of how you could translate this, not just anxiously. It's like this grievingly, where have you been? Your father and I have been looking. And here we have the first recorded words of Jesus. You know that because they're in red. Okay, that's how you know. At least in mine. Jesus spoke in red. Okay, that's, that's how you know. And notice his, his response is telling. It's telling in that, why is it you were looking for me? You know, you, I was looking for you. Why? Now, it's not, it's, not a, it's, it's not really a rebuke. It's more of just, well, why are you looking for me? This is to be expected. Did you not know? By the way, later we're going to read about an account on the road to Emmaus. Much later, by the way. Where, it's, where, where after three days... Jesus again says, these things should have been expected. This had to happen. Well, here is the beginning, the precursor of that. This is how it's got to be. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Some of your Bibles may say about my father's business or affairs. You could translate it any way. But because they were looking, location seems to be the best. And, and house or temple includes God's activities and affairs, all of those things. Notice, she said, your father and I are vexed. We've been looking. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So right away, we see Jesus' understanding of his union with the father and this intimacy with his father. Now, he's saying much more than those around him at this point can grasp or understand. But he's about his father's business, in his father's house. It's to be expected. And if we want a hint into the rest of Jesus' teenage years and then into his 20s, I would say it would be that. In all that he's doing, taking over the family business after Joseph dies, is what it appears, of being a carpenter and doing all these things, he's still about his father's business, learning what is expected of him and what this role would incorporate and mean. 
And notice his parents right off the bat saying they didn't understand the statement which he made to them. And we're like, well, come on. You already had angelic visitations to tell you and all those things. But again, they're like us. And it takes time. Mary would take a long time to just fully grasp, to kind of already and not yet kind of understanding of who Jesus is. And they didn't understand it all. But we are told later that Mary does treasure these things. Like We would say she really tried to remember this stuff. That's really kind of what that means. It's not just that, oh, it's more of, I'm really, I want to remember these things. And there's a lot of them, I'm sure, a lot of those moments in her life. Why does Luke have the account? Because Mary treasured these things. And because he talked to Mary, most likely. Now, lest we think, even though he's supposed to, he is there with these teachers of the law, in his father's house, he's still a good son. And we read that he went down with them to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. He still honored his mother and father. And again, down to Nazareth, even though Nazareth is north, remember it's elevation, everywhere is down from Jerusalem and the temple. Every, and if you're anywhere else, everywhere is up to Jerusalem and the temple. And then we're given the synopsis of 20 years or another of, of the next not 20 years, but in the next 18 years or so. And that is in verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and men. Uh, wisdom, of course, we understand. Stature, that's probably not just you know, physical stature, but maturity. You continue to mature, to grow in wisdom, as anyone would, and to grow in favor with God, in righteousness and with men. That basically means he was likable. He was likable. Goals for parenting. Boom. Here you go. There are four. No, I've never taught that before. Yeah, I've got whole sermon series and stuff on this, but just how, to te how we teach our children to grow in wisdom and in maturity and in righteousness, and just being likable. You know, it's, it's really telling sometimes when the kids like come to me and everyone, no one likes me, no one And it's my job sometimes to say, well, you're not likable. <laughs> they need someone to tell them that. You're a turd. <laughs> That's on tape now. All right, anyway. <laughs> but anyway, there you go. <laughs> It'll be. <laughs> The podcast will be, you're a beep. Okay, there we go. <laughs> and they need someone to tell them in a loving atmosphere. You know, as their headmaster, as one of their pastors, I can say, you know, and, and not just leave it at that, but help them to see what to do and how to grow. And Jesus was just, he was likable. Yes? So it seems to be a common expression today that God already loves you. You can't do anything to earn God's love love you any more than he does, but here it seems to contradict that, saying that Jesus, the very son of God, grew in God's favor. So I was wondering whether you think first statement's wrong, 
second statement's wrong, you know, it's in the Bible, or there's some tension that we need to kind of work through. The question is, you know, it seems like people today say, you know, you can't earn God's favor, and that's true. You cannot earn God's favor. I would say that's true. And therefore, there's nothing you can do to make yourself any more favorable to God, and that's in a sense true. But here's the thing. We confuse childlikeness with childishness. We're told to have childlike faith, meaning we can't know everything. We're just going to have to trust. Hence that you can't earn God's favor. Just trust. That's true. But being childlike in faith has nothing to do with remaining childish in faith or in anything else. And of course, children have a very limited perspective. They're myopic. They're selfish and all of those things. And we're not commanded to stay like that. Uh, Paul tells the church in Corinth to grow up and act like men. And that's the word he uses. There is a high call on maturing in faith, not remaining childish, but maintaining a childlike faith. And I think that's uh, something our culture as a whole needs to learn, and we, we as a church should probably lead the way. Um, you know, that's, that's an unfortunate consequence of a lot of youth ministry, and I speak to this because I've spent decades doing it, in that, you know, in a desire to see people come to faith, and rightly so, we keep so much student ministry childish. Everything is on the cookies are always on the lower shelf, and everyone eats cookies. And then they stay that way. And, and we don't have, and forgive, forgive me ladies, we don't have manly ministries often anymore where there is challenge and honor at stake. And I think that's why a lot of men and young boys want nothing to do with the church. Even though we try to say it, we're not, we don't want to say it, sometimes they think it's just sissy stuff. We say things like falling in love with Jesus. Ick. As a man, I'm not going to fall in love with another man. I love that man. I may fall in love with my wife. We take romantic language, too, and we kind of put that out there as if that's the norm. And all of this has latent sort of cultural meanings to it that jade what following Christ is. Following Christ is declaring that Jesus is Lord and accommodating your life to that truth. That's, that's manly stuff. Now, that's not to say that women can't do it, but notice the high call to maturity. Well, I got preaching. Sorry. Yes, sir. Be able to handle that reality of the child. 
Yeah, it's, always, it's never static. Never static, always a process. Um, hence, growing in favor with God and men. Imagine becoming more likable to God. Now, Jesus loves us and went to the cross for us, but I'm sure he didn't like a lot of what was going on. And maybe we need to become more likable. We don't earn God's favor. That's given to us by grace. But we can grow in being more likable in that. All right. A lot of stuff. A lot of cool stuff. Sorry I got to preaching. But that's what you get. You're a captive audience, and so be it. Yes? Thursday is Dennis Jones' 70th birthday. Wow. Happy birthday! Wow. Awesome. Let's pray together. <clears throat> We're humbled by your goodness to us and by your constancy. We live in a world that denigrates goodness and is so inconstant. So uh, us being able to rely on your love and your goodness and your grace, uh, your calling is comforting to us. Our prayer is that uh, as uh, we depart from this time this morning and from these passages that we've looked at, that we'll take what we've heard and be people of the Word, not just in knowing it, but in doing it. We know you're going to give us opportunities this week to do love. Pray that we're equal to it and that we don't miss those opportunities. We want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Use us in the name of Jesus. Amen.